We'll begin by reading Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, to chapter 6, verse 3. Galatians 5, 25, to chapter 6, verse 3. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let's pray together. Oh God, how we long to not deceive ourselves, how we want to see ourselves the way that you say that we are. As those who were dead in sin and have been made alive in Christ, as those who are still prone to wander and we feel it, those who still don't do what we want to do and want to do what we don't do. Oh God, we pray in these moments that you would speak by your Spirit into our lives through your Word. We pray your truth would glisten like a treasure in our hearts and we would grab for it and hang on to it and believe it. That we would not look for a word from somewhere else, from someone else, for you alone have given us the words of life. And so together we pray, speak, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Am I my brother's keeper? That question, when it was first asked, wasn't originally meant to be a question. You'll recall in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his younger brother Abel, and God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother Abel? God does not ask because he doesn't know where Abel is, all right? God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. So any question you find in the Bible is never one of God saying, well, I wonder what the answer is. That's not what's happening here. God asked this question to get to the very heart of Cain. And in response, Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's not a genuine question. It's rhetorical. It's actually a statement. It's more Cain's rejection of the idea that he could ever be responsible for his brother's well-being. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, thinking about that question genuinely, 
Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have responsibilities in the life of others, of especially my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, we could do a survey of the Bible, and we would find out very quickly that the answer is yes, we are meant to be our brother's keeper. And Paul's words here in his letter to the Galatians echoes that when he says, bear one another's burdens. But this isn't merely a command. It's not just handed down. It actually explains when we obey this, this is part of something else that Paul is talking about. It is part of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 16, Paul begins teaching about the Spirit, particularly walking by the Spirit. And there is much that has been said about walking by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. And I will tell you this, that in Paul's mind, this is not some mystical experience that we're trying to grab at. In fact, he defines walking by the Spirit by setting something else as its opposite, as against it. In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, walking by the Spirit means I am not gratifying the desires of the flesh. And he plays that out. He says, this is what the flesh looks like when it plays out. This is what the Spirit looks like. And he says, these two are at war with one another. They're against one another, but that we as Christians must walk by the Spirit. And Paul goes on to tell us as we get to the text that we read that this walk is not merely a personal walk. It's not something that only happens in isolation. It's not just me and my walk by the Spirit. But Paul indicates that this walk by the Spirit is to happen in the context of the church family. Okay? He gets very corporate very quick. If he were to stop at chapter 5, verse 24, you might not think that. You might wonder, although you could infer from love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all of those are things that are done in relationship to other people. Okay, But Paul is going to be very explicit about that as we get to our text. He says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. But the first thing he show, tells us, basically, is don't fall out of step with the Spirit. Don't fall out of step with the Spirit. He doesn't immediately go to the positive that this is what keeping in step with the Spirit will look like. He actually says, this is what it won't look like. He says, keep in step with the Spirit, and then he goes straight to the negative. Listen to 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right? Now, so that we're clear, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to those who live by the Spirit. You'll recall that we were dead in our sins and in our transgressions, but God has 
made us alive together with Christ. Okay? So that's actually one way to talk about being a Christian is that we were dead and now we are alive. And he says if we live by the Spirit, if we're Christians, then we keep in step with the Spirit. Now notice the order. Before we even go on to what he says, notice what the order that he says these things in. He does not say if we keep in step with the Spirit, then we will live. By the Spirit. He doesn't say we live a particular kind of life in order to have eternal life. No, he puts it in this order. If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Because we have been given new life in Christ, we live a new kind of life by the power of the Spirit. All right, now what does that mean then? What does keeping in step with the Spirit mean? Well, he shows us what it's not like. This is what it is to be out of step. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So conceit is out of step with the Spirit. Boasting in self, promoting self, having a deep sense of your own worth. I'm pretty great. I think I got this. But there's more here because the word that he uses in the Greek literally means empty praise. Self-oriented praise, self-oriented exaltation is empty. It's vain. It's meaningless because there's nothing in us that's worth praising, you understand. There's nothing in us worthy of exaltation. There's nothing in us to boast in. And those who are in step with the Spirit know this. But when you're out of step, when you're high on yourself, when you're conceited, Paul says a couple of other things may come along. Now, when you, if you're looking at the ESV, you'll, say, you'll see that he says, let us not become conceited, provoking participle one another, envying one another. So provoking and envying describe something about being conceited. Don't be conceited by provoking one another. So provoking one another. Now, most, if not all of you, will remember the story of David and Goliath, right? Everybody got that in your wheelhouse, right? The, the Israelites are on one side of the Valley of Elah. The Philistines are on the other. And every day, a, a warrior named Goliath would come out from the ranks of the Philistines and make a call over the valley to the Israelites. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That sentence, give me a man that we may fight together, that's provoking. That's what it looks like. Throwing down the gauntlet, laying out the challenge, picking a fight, that's what it is. Provoking, I mean, this is what parents tell their children, don't provoke your sister, right? What are you doing? If you're doing that, you're pushing buttons. 
because you're trying to get a rise out of them. Now, none of you are probably good at that. I was very good at that. Don't provoke. Provoking, in this sense, means that I'm looking to demonstrate my superiority over the other person. Picking at them so I can show how superior I am to them. Now, this can happen in conversation, uh, engaging in constant debate, not giving up, always throwing kind of uh, what we would like to deem truth bombs at one another so that we can really get a rise out of the other, not giving up until I clearly show that I am right and that you are wrong. This is provoking. This is how it happens. But did you know that it can happen inside your own head too? Have you ever walked away from a situation and thought, well, the next time that comes up and I'm with that person, this is exactly what I'm going to say. And you play that argument out in your mind like, this is what I will say and they will bend the knee and they will know that I am right. That's just provoking without saying a word. That is inner conceit. That is the sense that I am superior. And the next time I get the chance, I will show you that I am superior. Don't be conceited. Conceit can come out in a church in provoking one another. Always picking. Always picking a fight. Always needling. Always trying to get a stir. Always feeling like you are the the confrontation police that you're going to walk around and tell everyone what is wrong with them, that that is your role, that is your spiritual gift in the congregation. No such gift exists. But also, conceit can look like envying one another. Now, we don't actually think naturally of that, do we? That Envying one another could be conceit. Well, think of it this way. Provoking one another is a sense that I am superior. Envying is the longing to be superior. So, envying sees other people's gifts, their blessings, their home, their family, their job, their role in the church. And envy says, they shouldn't have that. I should have that. That's what envy says. Envy wants the superior position. Envy wants the upper hand. Envy will take you down in order to get what you... You do not deserve that. I deserve that. Envy will stir silent hatred for those around you who have what you want. Envy will keep you from loving others especially if you think they have what you deserve. Envy can fuel bitterness towards others when they have not sinned against you at all. Friends, envy questions the character of God. Because God is the one who is sovereign over the distribution of all these things that you are envious of. How dare God give all that to her, to Him, when I could have it? 
conceit, provoking, envying. These are out of step with the Spirit. These are not in any way Christian behavior. So Paul begins there. But the second thing he tells us is to keep in step with the Spirit. What does it actually look like, Paul? Well, the end of chapter 5 is what it doesn't look like, and the beginning of chapter 6 shows us what it does look like. And the general command is there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Here's the command. Bear one another's burdens. Instead of being conceited, instead of provoking one another, instead of envying one another, bear one another's burdens. Instead of feeling a sense of pride and superiority about yourself, whether you're longing for superiority or you feel you're already superior, get down and bear one another's burdens. That's what living, keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. A burden is something that is heavy, that is hard, that presses in on us. It could be a long season of life where the responsibilities of home and work and church and more feel heavier by the moment. They're not getting any lighter anytime soon. It could be a sudden weight dropped on you unexpectedly, a diagnosis, an unexpected death, a layoff at work, a break-in at your home, a friend who suddenly turns his back on you. Now, as Christians, when we think about the burdens in our own lives, we come back to this over and over again. God intends these burdens in my life for His glory and for my good. We feel like the burdens will crush us, but they are meant to crush our self-reliance. They are meant to conform us to the image of Christ. They are meant to teach us to trust the Lord with all our heart, and to lean not on our own understanding. They're meant to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we kind of know that about when burdens come into our own life, but what are, we, what are we to think, what are we to do when burdens come into the lives of others, apart from that has come into their life for God's glory and for their good? God actually has something else to say to us about the burdens of others. Namely, bear one another's burdens. We're called to get up under whatever the weight is and share the load, to feel the weight. I don't know if you've ever like, been part of trying to lift something heavy and um, you, you, know, you're, you're, you have your hands on it. Like There are times that we have to move this piano and there will be three or four of us around and uh, you go to lift, and everybody else has already got the weight, but you want to feel like you're doing something. So you keep your hands on it, and you move with the piano, even though you're not doing anything. Now, I'm not saying I've done that, but I know someone who preaches often who does, who has done that. But that is not bearing the burden. Bearing the burden is not just like making a show, putting your hands under there and kind of going along, but not doing anything. Bearing a burden feels the weight of the piano. Bearing the burden gets up under and feels the weight. And this kind of entering into the burdens and the suffering of others isn't isolated to this one phrase in this one text. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Weep. Not simply feel bad for them. Weep with them. 1 Corinthians 12 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. You see, in the church, in this church family, Gray Road members, in this church family, their burden is never just their burden. It is never third person singular or third person plural. It is always first person plural. Their burden is our burden. It is ours. It's not meant to be individual It is meant to be corporate. Now, can I tell you, it is not natural to think this way. Sometimes you can just naturally think, that sounds awful, I hope they're okay. Lots of people will do that. Lots of people who don't believe in Jesus at all would think that's terrible and I hope they're okay. But Paul's not even pretending that this is a natural thing to do, to get up under the weight with somebody else and help lift it. It's supernatural. It's keeping in step with the Spirit. You can't actually bear somebody else's burden in the way that Paul says unless you have the Spirit of God living inside you. You can't. I can't. It's not natural. So what would this look like? What what things should we start to discipline ourselves, train ourselves to do with God's help in order to start feeling the weight Well, every Wednesday we send out a prayer letter, and it has burdens on it. When you read that first burden, Dick Jones had a heart attack, he has to have a medicated balloon put in, say to yourself, that is my burden. That is my burden. Lord, in your grace, help me to feel the weight of that burden. What must Betty be thinking? What must Dick be thinking? To begin to feel the way. When you're talking to someone else and they share the burden of their week with you in your mind, ask the Lord to help you begin to feel that burden. But besides feeling it, there are other things to actually that we can begin to do. Let me just share with you three simple things that you can do, three at least clear things, simple to understand, but they take the grace of God and His help to really do. And that the first is to pray. Pray. This is one way to help bear the burdens of others. It is to cast their cares on the Lord on their behalf, to ask for mercy and grace and strength and pray that God will help them to see this burden as a means of glorifying Him and growing in Christ. Pray for any number of things. But the second thing, now see, that's where many people will stop, all right? Many people will stop there. This is what bearing one another's burdens mean. It only means I will pray for you. 
But there is more that we can do to help give strength, to help lift. The second thing that you can do is to speak. Last week we talked about speaking the truth in love. You can point your burdened friend to the truth about who God is, about how He works, about the fact that He is good in the midst of their circumstances, that He is trustworthy in the midst of their circumstances. Speak to them. Do you know that the Word of God gives us strength? We're not going to live through burdens by bread alone, but by the words of God. And I will tell you that the longer burdens go on, there can be a tendency to stop listening to God's words and move to try to find other solutions to this problem. That's why we must speak to one another. The third thing is do. Pray, speak, do. Offer a practice. Put yourself in their shoes. Say, if I was walking through that, if I was Betty Jones today, what might be something that I could need? And then offer to do that. If I am, if I am in the shoes of David Webb, if I am in the shoes of Jason Stinson, if I am in the shoes of Adam Stuckey, if I am in the shoes of whoever it is that's walking through that long, walking, walking down that long road, what is, what is something I think might be beneficial for me in that circumstance? And then just offer it. Do you know offering, do you know receiving the offer for something you don't need is still a great blessing? It's still a great blessing. Because somebody is coming up under that weight with you and saying, let me, let me just help you lift just a bit for today. Let me help you lift. Now, when we go back to verse 1, pray, speak, do. When we go back to verse 1, what we see is that Paul mentions a specific burden that we should bear. Now, it's really for our benefit that he mentions this because this particular burden is one where we are prone to move away and stay away, all right? When someone's suffering, I'm like, okay, I've talked about, I've done this before, people have done this for me, I'm in, I can do it, I can pray, I can speak, we can read the Bible together, I can take you to that appointment, I can sit with you, I can provide child care, I can do all of that. But then when it comes to verse 1, people are like, well, well, I, I, uh, we should probably call a pastor, Let's look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is the particular burden that is on Paul's mind. Now, you may read that and you see the phrase, you who are spiritual, and you like wipe your head, right? Because I don't consider myself all that spiritual. So I am obviously just going to be listening to this part of the sermon for all the other people who need to hear it. Well, the word spiritual here simply means of the Spirit. Paul isn't using it as a measurement of maturity. Think about all that Paul has been saying. Just glance down at the text, let your eyes run along as I say this. 
Christians, all Christians, are to walk by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 16. Christians are led by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18. Christians live by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25. Christians keep in step with the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25. Friends, do you know this? The Christian life is a spiritual life. Now, people walk around talking about spiritual life all the time. They say, well, I'm not... Rel- I remember when I interviewed to be a hospice chaplain up in Marion, uh, the, the kind lady who was the, my boss and the manager of this place, uh, she, she was interviewing me, and I told her, you know, she knew that I was a Baptist, that I had served as a pastor in this place and that. And um, she said, now... When we think about chaplaincy, we, we really want people, we want to deal in things that are spiritual, but not necessarily religious. Now, I knew what she meant, but my response to her was, I can do that so long as I get to define what those terms mean. <laughs> she still hired me. They really must have needed someone. Uh, Because the fact of the matter is, is the way that people talk about being spiritual is not the way Paul is talking about being spiritual. The only spiritual is being of the Spirit. That is what it means. Everybody's religious. Everybody worships something. Everybody has an inclination to worship. But not all are spiritual in this sense of the word. And Paul is saying those who are spiritual should restore him. So think of it this way. Those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, who are seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, should restore those who've been caught out of step with the Spirit. Okay? And he says in any transgression, which is also helpful because if he didn't write that, you might think he's only talking about conceit, provoking one another, and envying one another. But he says, no, 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 if anyone is caught in any transgression, not just those transgressions, but any transgression, if they are out of step with the Spirit at all, you who are keeping in step with the Spirit should seek to restore them. Now, you may hear that and you may immediately think negatively of it, like, I cannot do that. I am not equipped to do that. Now, I know what you mean, but if you are of the Spirit, you have the one who can make you sufficient for all of those interactions. There is no truly Christian counselor who walks into a room with someone, say in a formal setting, who walks in to, do, to, to listen to a problem who says, oh, I got this one. I've done this one so many times, I've got it down. I've got the formula. It's X, Y, Z, da, 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 and then you'll be fine in eight weeks. No, 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 no. The spiritual counselor says, um, I, I can't do this without the Spirit's help and the Spirit's word. I, I can't. 
Anyone who is spiritual. But just, just think about this. Think about it differently. Don't think negatively immediately. Think about the positive. Think about this. You are God's means of restoring a sinning brother to a faithful walk. Think about it that way. What a privilege that is. It is weighty. It is sobering. It is humbling. But what a privilege it is in addition to being a great responsibility. We are called to come alongside and get up under the weight that is pressing on the soul of brothers and sisters, especially when that weight is their sin, when they're caught in any transgression. Now, caught there could mean that it's overcome them and it's habitual, or it could mean they've just been caught, like it's come to light. They've been found out. But either way, keeping in step with the Spirit means moving toward them, not away from them. Not away from them. And the purpose of moving toward them is not to press down on the burden so we make sure they know how heavy this burden is, but to bear up under it, to help them break free of it, to restore them. You see, when a brother is caught in sin, do you know what conceit does? Conceit crosses its arms. Conceit wags its finger, shakes its finger. Conceit wags its head. Conceit heaps shame out of a sense of moral superiority. According to Jesus, this is the way of the Pharisee. In Matthew 23, he says that the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This, Pharisees put on the burdens. That's what we do. That's what conceit does. You think you're quite something because the outside looks great. Bearing the burden mourns. Bearing the burden demonstrates compassion. Bearing the burden points to Christ. Does It calls for repentance and faith as the only way. Bearing the burden seeks to walk the one in sin out of it. Bearing the burden doesn't stand over here and say, Well, I'll pray for you, my good friend, and then leave them alone. And we'll see what happens. Bearing the burden moves toward them. If this was your child, now put it in that, bearing your child's burden, when your child is stuck in a pattern of sin, do you just say, well, I'm going to pray for them, but I'm not going to actually talk to them about it. I'm not actually going to help them. I'm not actually going to do anything or move toward them. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pray over here. I'm going to tell them, hey, I'm praying for you, six-year-old. Hope you figure it out. No, we move toward them. We move toward them. And we should move toward one another because we are a family. Why else would he throw in this word right at the beginning of chapter 6 to remind us, brothers, brothers, we belong to God, yes, and we belong to one another. Bearing the burden aims at restoration. At uh, when I first, there's a out here in the foyer, there's a little half moon desk. And when I first came here, every single Sunday, without fail, 
you could walk in and you would find Odell Sears sitting at that desk every Sunday. He was the guardian of the half-moon desk. And Odell shared with me that he liked, that in his day he really liked to restore old cars. He'd take these things that are beat up and he'd work on them and all these things. But I want you to imagine Odell found just this beat up piece of junk. It was probably in the front yard of somebody in Tennessee. And he found it. And he goes and he puts a shiny new coat of paint on it and stops there. Is the car restored? Well, you don't know, but you open up the hood and you know what you find? There ain't no engine in there. Or the engine's completely rusted out. But the outside looks beautiful. Is it restored? No. The same is true in the restoration of the one who is in sin. The goal of restoration is not merely a change in behavior. It is not merely external. It is internal because behavior only goes wrong because the heart has gone wrong. You see, if I am working with a man who is angry and in his anger he likes to throw things against the wall at his house, he likes to throw plates against the wall in his anger. He doesn't throw them at anyone for which we're thankful, but he throws them at the wall and just breaking things. And if I, if I talk to him, and as a result of talking to him, he's decided he's going to stop breaking things. Is that good? Well, sort of, right? But if all he does is stop breaking things and he never deals with the anger in his heart and where it's coming from, do you know what will happen? His anger will come out somewhere else. Sin is a shape-shifter. It will look like explosion in one place, and it will look like absolute silence in another. He will find reasons to not be at home. He will not talk to his wife. He will neglect his children. His anger will come out in other ways. Just dealing with the coat of paint on the outside is not what Paul means by restoring. He means a restoration that is a renovation of the heart, a realignment to the things of the Spirit that comes out in the fruit of the Spirit. That's what restoration looks like. And how are we to do it? He gives us three words in verse 1. We're to do it gently. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, you don't bring a sledgehammer to help someone who's already shattered in sin. Gently. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Is gentleness. We're also to do it carefully. He goes on, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Watch over your own soul. Keep watch that you are not stirred up by evil desires. Now, what, what could that look like? Well, men, if you are helping a friend who is stuck in a pattern of pornography and you have set up software that will send you a report every week on their activity on one device or another, you need to beware when that report arrives. 
when it says they went to this site and that site and that site, you better watch your heart or you will find yourself desiring to see, well, just what's on that site. Ladies, if you happen to be talking with a friend who is constantly complaining, complaining about her kids, complaining about her husband, complaining about her mother-in-law, complaining about her mother, her sister, her work, whatever it is, complaining about her health, complaining about fill in the blank. And when you get together with her, beware, especially if you have had a hard week. Because you could be vulnerable to just joining in the complaining. And the Bible tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining in Philippians 2. In other words, we are, Proverbs 4, to keep watch, keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep watch on yourself. (coughs) One of the things to look for is pride, and that actually brings us to the third way. So gently, carefully, and humbly. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, I sin, but I would never go that far. I would never sin like that. Oh, friend, beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. And when we do this, when we do this work of restoration with the help of the Spirit, doing it gently and carefully and humbly, look what we accomplish, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Think about what Christ has done for us. We were slaves to sin. Its shackles bound us, our feet, our hearts, our minds. The weight of those chains was more than we could bear. We were hopeless and helpless. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, came. He did not stand in the glories of heaven and cross His arms and shake His finger and wag His head. He came to us. He robed Himself in our humanity. And He didn't simply get up under the weight of sin with us. He took it for us. 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree. And that great once-for-all atonement of Jesus on the cross broke the chains of sin. And Jesus walked us out of our sin, slavery, and into freedom, into forgiveness. Now, if you don't know that freedom and forgiveness, you can today. That by God's grace, you can turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will save you. He will. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord today. And for those of us who are Christians, this is the pattern we follow. We bear one another's burdens, especially the burden of sin. Now, we can only imitate our Savior to a point. We cannot atone for anyone's sin, but we can lead them to the one who did. We cannot free other people from sin slavery, but we can take them to the one who can. And as with friends who are suffering, when our friends are in sin, we do the same three things. We pray, we speak, we do. 
We pray for God's grace. We speak God's truth. And we do. We, we walk with them. We help them think about practical ways to walk, to put off the sin and put on holiness. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Paul says to you and to me this morning, if anyone is caught in any transgression, restore them. Let me ask you a question, just a few questions before we finish. I wonder, has this text caught you as one who is not bearing the burdens of anyone else? I wonder, have you convinced yourself that you have so many burdens in your own life, you couldn't possibly care for someone else? Well, friend, know this. God doesn't call you to anything that His Spirit can empower you for. As you hear this, I wonder, are you more focused on whether others are obeying this and helping you bear burdens Or are you more focused on whether you are obeying and bearing the burdens of others? Focus on your obedience and trust the Lord with your burdens. I wonder, do you think that God exempts you from obedience because, hey, it's 2020? And things are so chaotic in the world. No such exemption exists. We must not act as if God has written His Word for every year other than the year in which we're living. We cannot act as if God has written His Word for every set of circumstances except the set of circumstances I'm in right now. We cannot believe for a moment that God gives us a pass on obedience because of the circumstances of our lives. So you and I need to take these words seriously. We do not put obedience to this text on hold until something feels normal again. It may not look like it did in February. But you must obey. Or you will be out of step with the Spirit of God. Don't you want to keep in step with the Spirit? Don't you want to be part of God's purposes in the lives of other people? Don't you want to know the joy of bearing other people's burdens? 
It was for the joy set before Jesus that he went to the cross. Dear friends, you are your brother's keeper. God expects you to take responsibility and do your part in the lives of those around you, especially in the church family. Keep in step with the Spirit by bearing one another's burdens. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you thankful for your mercy, your grace, your kindness toward us. We are thankful for a Savior who has borne a burden we could never bear on our own. We thank you for the forgiveness, for the release, for the freedom in Christ. And we pray that we will follow in his steps and seek to bear one another's burdens faithfully to fulfill the law of Christ. Help us to do it gently. Help us to do it carefully. Help us to do it humbly. But God, please, by your grace, help us to do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now.